Father, may the, uh, the truth of those words we've just sung be the desire of our hearts. And we pray that as we continue in worship, our hearts will be open to you. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. When you go out of town, what's your uh, favorite place to eat? Do you like those, um, well, do you like fast food or do you, yeah. do you like um, those little out-of-the-way places that are, you have to be looking for to find? Or do you tend to go with things that are familiar? Do you like... Um, Diners, drive-ins, and dives, or do you like uh, Food Network? Sorry, back to that again. Or uh, do you like chain restaurants? Well, I suspect that it depends on the, the makeup of our family, who we're with that day, and if there are children or not, or what we're hungry for, what we happen to come upon. If you go to a chain restaurant, do you have a favorite one? I was thinking about that this week as I was pondering this sermon, and I saw a commercial for the Olive Garden restaurant. And some of you have probably been to the Olive Garden restaurant, and you've probably seen their ads, you know, it's Italian food. And their tagline is, when you're here, you're family. And they try to show you pictures, and they try to make you think that it's just like going to somebody's Italian home if you were in Italy, and it would be just, you know, it's like being home, it's family. I don't know if that's true or not, but it did strike me that I think that phrase is kind of lost on a, fast, on a chain restaurant. It seems to me that that ought to be the tagline of the church. When you're here, you're family. Now, I was, as I was thinking about a title for this sermon, it, it came to me, We Are Family. And some of you may, be wondering, may have been wondering if we were going to sing today uh, that song from the 1970s that uh, I think it was the theme song of the Pittsburgh Pirates as they went on to win the championship that year. You know, the uh, disco song, but I decided that probably wouldn't be the best thing for us to do in church this morning. We used to sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, and we don't sing that a lot anymore. Maybe it's because the melody of that song is a little bit passe, but, but there's truth to that. That we are family. We are a part of the family of God, and, and, and we are the gathering of God's people, this body of believers, when we come together in worship, and as we live and, and breathe and, and work out our faith together. And I think that the scriptures tell us over and over again that, that the church as family, the church as the body of Christ, the church as the people of God is essential to what it means to be Christian. But in our Western culture, we tend to push that to the side. And we tend to think more about me than about us. But the scriptures from the beginning to the end are filled with passages and images and stories and, and, and teachings that the church, the people of God, is central to what it means to be a follower of God. And one of those places is here in Ephesians chapter 2. As we look at this passage, we're in a, we'll see that, that God is interested in us as the people of God. But actually, before we even talk about that, we need to do what Paul does and take a step back to the beginning and think back to how we got here in the first place. 
how do we get into to the church? How do, we, how do we begin in relationship with God? And Paul reminds us at the very beginning of this letter that we came not because of us. We're part of the family, not because of us, but because of God. He starts out in verses 1, 2, and 3 telling us how bad we were. We were dead in our sins. We were separated from God. He, he uses, I think, five different phrases or terms to describe our sinfulness and our unworthiness. We were completely lost and there was absolutely nothing we could do about it. We're done. We've rejected God. We've thumbed our noses at God. And if you, if you debate whether you know, sinfulness is really that part of human nature, just watch the news or read the paper. Or spend some time with some other people. You know, our selfishness and, and all the ways in which we sin against each other is always before us. And, it's, and, and the church is not exempt from that. I was reading the other day about uh, an incident in Philadelphia in 1844. There were massive riots in the city and a number of Catholic churches were burned. And more than a dozen people were killed and scores were wounded and, and millions of dollars in damage. And it all started... When some Protestants twisted the intentions of a Catholic bishop about which translation of the Bible should be read in Philadelphia's public schools. I don't think we need a lot of evidence that we wrestle with sinfulness. We all struggle with sin. We all have corrupted God's eternal plans for us. And so in the face of that, what does God do? God has every right to say, fine, I'm done with these people. Wash his hands of us and move out. It never ceases to amaze me that God's answer to our sinfulness and to our rejection is not to flex his muscles. His strategy for our sin is a baby and a crown of thorns and a cross and a tomb. And then resurrection. As Tim Gombas says in his book, The Drama of Ephesians, we have our citizenship in God's kingdom because God is good, not because we are impressive. And Paul wants us to remember right up front, and it is essential to remember that we're a part of God's kingdom. We're a part of the family only and only, only, only because of God's grace. It begins there. It ends there. It is all about God's grace. But he also wants us to understand that this grace that God has given us is not just intended to restore our relationship with God. It's about our relationship with each other too. It's about being the family of God. In verses 14 through 18, he talks about how the grace of God in Christ has, has removed our hostilities and broken down walls and united us together. And he has created the church. Eugene Peterson says the church summarizes all that God does, all that Christ is, all that we are in Christ. The church comprises all that's involved in living a mature life in Christ. I just saw this week that in David Barrett's World Christian Encyclopedia, he defines evangelicals in, in other ways, but also to say they are characterized by a commitment to personal religion. Now, that's true. We do believe that we have a personal relationship with God. But in the evangelical world, that tends to be first, foremost, most important. Everything else is secondary. And I don't think that's biblical. I don't think it's spiritually healthy. 
Wendell Berry was out one day with a friend and they came upon a field of sunflowers. And they were just walking around this field and they happened to see one sunflower by itself sort of off to the side. And it was taller than the other sunflowers. It, it, it was bigger than the other sunflowers and they thought, wow, that's interesting. And they, but when they walked over to it, they realized that what they thought was healthy wasn't. The blossoms were thick and heavy and in fact so heavy that the branches were starting to strain and to break under the weight. And it was actually dying. And Barry noted that in one sense the plant had succeeded as a solo plant. It was growing and it was unusually tall, but unfortunately it had completely failed in its intended purpose as a sunflower. Because those plants thrive and grow as they grow in community, not in isolation. And he went on to conclude that we could say that achieving success solely as an individual was actually the plant's failure. It had failed because it lived outside of an important part of its definition, of its individuality and its community. And I suspect that in the church... We have this mindset, in our, particularly in our Western culture, we tend to think that if you don't need someone else, you're strong. If you can succeed on your own, you're a hero. We admire and, and we encourage people who do their own thing and build themselves up. And we often think people who need others are kind of weak. And no wonder when we start talking about the church as essential to our faith, we sort of go, well, really? Well, I guess there are some people maybe who need that. But the scriptures tell us again and again and again, it is in the community that our faith grows. It's in the community of faith, in the body of Christ, in the family, that we actually develop into the people God intended us to be, not on our own in isolation. I've come to the conclusion that one of the reasons God designed the church, the family of God, is that it was the best way to help us mature. You think about it. If you're by yourself, who's going to challenge you? I mean, if you're the only person in the room, if you're the only person that, if the only person that, you, that you that have to worry about, you think what you think, you believe what you believe, and you move on. But in the family, you're always encountering other people who see things differently. People who who approach things differently, who've had different experiences, and we're thrown together, and we have to try to figure out how we're going to deal with that. But that's how we mature. Iron sharpens iron. By our conversations, by working things out, by living together as people of God and family. So when we encounter someone, it doesn't go the the way it should have, we walk away, and God says, you know... That wasn't the right way to respond to them. And we go back and we apologize and we work it out. And we walk away from that more mature than we would have been if it had just been us. And the very thing about the church that often causes us to say, I don't want to be a part of it, is the very reason why God designed it. Because we need each other. Because we challenge each other. And we encourage each other. And sometimes we irritate each other. But all of it is a means that God uses to make us mature in the faith that we simply cannot accomplish if it's just me. Even if it's just me and Jesus. We need each other. We need the church. 
And I know the church is difficult. But sooner or later, as Eugene Peterson says, if we're serious about growing up in Christ, we have to deal with the church. And Paul tells us that if you're going to deal with the church, if you're going to be a part of the family, it's not just saying, okay, I'm a part of the family, but it's the attitude, it's the spirit in which we bring to the family that's going to make a difference. And the attitude, the element of the church that Paul is describing here in this last section is, I think, the this, this spirit of equality. That we see each other as equals in the family. Beginning at verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of the kingdom. There are no levels, there's no class structure in the church. We're all equal. And why are we all equal? Because we all came into the kingdom the same way by the grace of Jesus Christ. I think that's why Paul starts with that here. Because if we think anything about us made it possible for us to enter the kingdom, then, you can, then we probably are going to think we're better than other people. I mean, this is the issue going on here with the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and the, originally the Jews were saying we're better than the Gentiles. But as the church grew and as it expanded and more and more Gentiles came into the church, that began to reverse. And now the Gentiles were saying, hey, we're better than the Jews. We're not locked up in all that legal stuff. We're just free. And you see Paul addressing that in various letters of the New Testament. They're both wrong. It's not about who's better or worse. It's not about who is who is greatest or least, it's we're all together equal because we're all here only because of Christ. It doesn't really have anything to do with us. It's about Christ. Equality is not something we create. It is simply the design of our faith as followers of Christ. But you know, something in our sinful nature loves exclusivity. We love to divide. Nobody has to write a manual about divisiveness. You know, you'll never go to the bookstore and say, here's how you can be a divisive person. We just sort of naturally know that kind of thing, don't we? And we love to create groups that are exclusive of other people. It's the in-group and the out-group. There is something, uh, we're just masters at separating ourselves from each other. And we do this over a wide variety of issues, even in the church. We can divide about race or gender. We can divide about uh, music or worship styles or social issues or politics or ministry significance. We certainly can do this about theology. This is one of the issues that I wrestle with because, you know, after all these years of thinking about theology, I know I'm right. And, you know, I I hope someday those of you who might not agree with me will see how right I am. And as long, but as long as we have that, any of that attitude, we have a superior feeling toward other people. We believe we're better than them because we're right. And if we're right and they disagree with us, they have to be wrong. But this is where we come back to the whole mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is none of us understand everything about God and the kingdom. 
God has chosen to not reveal everything about the kingdom. God has chosen to not tell us everything that we'd love to know. And there is evidence in scripture about some of these theological issues that are both right. And in the church, we have to figure out a way to live with that. But as long as our mindset is, I'm right, you're wrong, there will never be equality. We'll always think we're better than other people, or they're better than us. And that will cause fractures and dissonance and inequality. I think that we struggle to to really see, take equality seriously because we forget why we got here. We forget that we're here because of the grace of God. Not because we were smart or because we had a better upbringing or because we've had better experiences. It's because of the grace of Christ. Now granted, equality doesn't mean sameness. God does not, he's not looking for a church of clones. He created us diverse. And God intended that. That's a part of his creation for us to have diversity. But again, that's why the church is so important and so necessary. It's that diversity that forces us to figure out ways how we're going to get along with each other. And it forces us to come to grips with having to value people, genuinely value people who are different from us. And to receive that same sense of value from those people who are different from us. God is not saying, I want all of you to be the same. He's saying, I want you to to realize that you've come into the kingdom by the grace of Christ. And it makes you equals. And I'm going to help you if you'll let me figure out what that means for you as the people of God. We tend to think of of verse 8 as sort of the, the... central point of this passage, verses 8 and 9. If you grew up in the church, you probably memorized this verse in some kind of children's ministries. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. It is a wonderful promise, and it helps us to set into focus all that God has done for us in Christ and how we enter the family. But it's not intended as an end. It's the means to an end. And the means, it's a means to the end of, of the end of the chapter where Paul says, God has brought you here in grace, not because of you, but because of him. But he's brought you here in grace so that together he can build his holy temple. He can do something with you that other people can look at and say, wow, those people are different. Those people treat each other different than, than most people do. Those people have got something and I would like it. And as we join together, as we become, truly become family, God takes that and he builds his temple out of it. As I read that passage, my mind flashed back to the, to the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. One of, the, one of the primary accusations of Jesus at his trial is that he said, I will destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And as he's hanging on the cross, the most... One of the most serious taunts against him, most painful taunts, is you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come on down off the cross and save yourself. What they didn't realize is that Jesus wasn't talking about bricks and mortar and cement. 
He was talking about people. And on Sunday, when Jesus rose from the grave, that cornerstone was laid in place. And all through the centuries, the church has continued to be built. And you and I are a part of that building. If we will embrace the grace of Christ for you, for me, for all of us, and really see ourselves as family. I think if we take this passage seriously, we will look at each other differently. We will diligently seek to live with more compassion toward each other. We'll be more ready to listen to one another and to learn from each other. We'll be more apt to say, well, let's just agree to disagree. We'll be more apt to think, I wonder what that person can teach me, rather than how can I convince them to take my side in the argument. We hang out with people who are different from us, who see things differently, because we realize that God is at work in them, and we want God to be at work through them in us. And that mindset takes humility, and humility is hard for us, and that's why we have to keep coming back to grace. That's why we keep coming back to how we got here in the first place. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Period. Period. Marjorie Holmes said one day she was standing in line in the post office when a woman came in with her little girl about four years old. It was near Halloween and the little girl was dressed up in her costume and she had on a black cape and She had her face all painted up and she had a big pointy black hat. And Marjorie leaned down the little girl and said, oh my, I'm so scared. I think I see a witch. And she said, I will never forget that little girl turning to me with the sweetest look on her face and looking at me with those big blue eyes. And she said to me, don't be afraid. It's just a little girl in here. And I read that and I thought to myself, what better spirit could we have as the body of Christ, as the family? To remember, it's just a little girl in here. It's just a little boy in here. And everything else is the grace of Christ. Everything else is God in us. We are family whether we like it or not. And whether you are a year-round resident or you're here during the school year only, we're family. And when we come together, we want to be family. Connecting our lives with each other, caring for each other, loving each other, weeping with each other, laughing with each other, doing what family does. Because we know We're here because of Christ. And Christ brings us together and draws us together and is building his kingdom in this place with this family. Holy Father, give us grace to humble ourselves, to remember who we are and who we were And what you've made us. Father continue. To make us family. Continue to to draw us together. 
in the grace of Christ so that you can build your holy temple in us and with us and do more than we could have dreamed or imagined. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.